Environment Today is a podcast about the current state of our planet's environment and ways to contribute to the health and prosperity of our ecosystem. Content presented by Amy and James Sharp. I'm James Sharp. And I'm Amy Sharp. All information being discussed today is from the report titled Global Warming of 1.5 Degrees Celsius, an IPCC special report on the impacts of global warming of 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels and related global greenhouse gas emission pathways in the context of strengthening the global response to the threat of climate change, sustainable development, and efforts to eradicate poverty. Environment Today's podcast will bring this and other reports to you every two weeks, putting these details into layman's terms as much as possible. You will receive a great deal more information than you would hear or read in short blurbs of daily news briefings. We want to bring you all the key facts in detail and then provide real-life solutions that you can implement after hearing the facts of each report. In this report, more than 6,000 scientific references have been cited, 91 authors from the scientific community, and review editors from 40 countries prepared this IPCC report in response to an invitation from the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, or the UNFCCC, when it adopted the Paris Agreement in 2015. This is the first special report from a series that will be created by the IPCC and was released October 8, 2018. The IPCC is an intergovernmental panel on climate change that is part of the United Nations body and is solely tasked with assessing the science related to climate change. Chapter 4 reiterates that limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels would require transformative systemic change integrated with sustainable development. Such change would require the upscaling and acceleration of the implementation of far-reaching local, national, and global levels, as well as cross-sectoral climate mitigation and addressing barriers to implementing solutions. Such systemic change that we all would implement on this global scale would need to be linked to complementary adaptation actions that involves global collaboration and transformational adaptation by all countries for those areas that temporarily overshoot 1.5 degrees Celsius. Current national pledges on mitigation and adaptation are not enough to stay below the Paris Agreement temperature limits and achieve its adaptation goals. While transitions in energy efficiency, carbon intensity of fuels, electrification, and land use change are all solutions that are underway in various countries, limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius will require a greater scale and pace of change to transform energy, land, urban, and industrial systems globally. Although multiple communities around the world are demonstrating the possibility of implementation consistent with the 1.5 degrees Celsius pathway, very few countries, regions, cities, communities, or businesses can currently make such a claim. To strengthen the global response, almost all countries would need to significantly raise their level of ambition. 
Implementation of this raised ambition would require enhanced institutional capabilities in all countries, including building the capability to utilize indigenous and local knowledge. Examples of Indigenous and Local Knowledge Changes in behavior within the community can happen by providing education and knowledge of environmental conditions, which then helps communities detect and monitor change. One place to start this education and knowledge is within the local school curricula. Other Indigenous adaptation opportunities within the local institutions include alterations to building codes and infrastructure design, implementing disaster risk management plans, and installing surveillance to monitor and predict extreme events. In developing countries and for poor and vulnerable people, implementing the response would require financial, technological, and other forms of support to build capacity for which additional local, national, and international resources would need to be mobilized. However, public, financial, institutional, and innovation capabilities currently fall short of implementing far-reaching measures at scale in all countries. Transnational networks that support multi-level climate action are growing, but challenges in their scale-up remain. Learning from current adaptation practices and strengthening them through adaptive governance lifestyle and behavioral change and innovative financing mechanisms can help their mainstreaming within sustainable development practices. Preventing maladaptation, drawing on bottom-up approaches, and using indigenous knowledge would effectively engage and protect vulnerable people and communities. While adaptation finance has increased quantitatively, significant further expansion would be needed to adapt to 1.5 degrees Celsius. The appropriate use of these finances that are allocated to adaptation and how funds are utilized should focus on how to reduce climate impacts locally. The energy system transition that would require to limit global warming conditions is underway in many sectors and regions around the world. The political, economic, social, and technical feasibility of solar energy, wind energy, and electricity storage technologies has improved dramatically over the past few years, while that of nuclear energy and carbon dioxide capture utilization and storage, also known as CCUS, in the electricity sector, have not shown similar improvements. What are some energy solutions that can be integrated? Electrification, hydrogen, bio-based feedstocks, carbon dioxide capture, utilization, and storage, or CCUS, would lead to the deep emission reductions required in energy-intensive industries to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. However, those options are limited by institutional, economic, and technical constraints. Energy efficiency in industry is more economically feasible and helps enable industrial system transitions, but would have to be complemented with greenhouse gas neutral processes or carbon dioxide removal 
to make energy-intensive industries consistent with 1.5 degrees Celsius. Various mitigation options are expanding rapidly across many geographies. Electrification, end-use energy efficiency, and increased share of renewables are lowering energy use and decarbonizing energy supply, especially in buildings. Buildings are responsible for 32% of global energy consumption and have a large energy-saving potential with available and demonstrated technologies, such as energy efficiency improvements in technical installations and in thermal insulation and energy sufficiency. Studies show that 1.5 degrees Celsius consistent pathways require building emissions to be reduced by 80 to 90 percent by 2050. New construction to be fossil-free and near zero energy by 2020. And an increased rate of energy refurbishment of existing buildings to 5 percent per annum, according to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD. Technological and social innovations can contribute to limiting warming by enabling the use of smart grids, energy storage technologies, and general-purpose technologies, such as information and communication technology, that can be deployed to help reduce emissions. The largest growth driver for renewable energy has been the dramatic reduction in the cost of solar photovoltaics, or PV. This has made rooftop solar competitive in sunny areas between 45 degrees north and south latitude. What are some other adaptation solutions that can be used with urban environments? Other feasible adaptation options include green infrastructure, resilient water and urban ecosystem services, urban and peri-urban agriculture, and adapting buildings and land use through regulation and planning. Integrating and promoting green urban infrastructure, including street trees, parks, green roofs and facades, and water features into city planning can be difficult but increases urban resilience to impacts of 1.5 degrees Celsius warming in ways that can be more cost-effective than conventional infrastructure. Rapid changes needed in urban environments include demotorization and decarbonization of transport, including the expansion of electric vehicles and greater use of energy-efficient appliances. Cities pursuing sustainable transport benefit from reduced air pollution, congestion, and road fatalities, and are able to harness the relationship between transport systems, urban form, urban energy intensity, and social cohesion. What about transportation emissions within commercial sectors like aviation and ocean vessels? International transport hubs, including airports and ports, and the associated mobility of people, are major economic contributors to most large cities, even while under the governance of national authorities and international legislation. 
shipping, freight, and aviation systems have grown rapidly, and little progress has been made since the IPCC Assessment Report 5 from 2014 on replacing fossil fuels, though some trials are continuing. Aviation emissions do not yet feature in integrated assessment models, but could be reduced by between a third and two-thirds through energy efficiency measures and operational changes. On shorter intercity trips, aviation could be replaced by high-speed electric trains, drawing on renewable energy. Some progress has been made on the use of electricity in planes and shipping, though no commercial applications have arisen. Studies indicate that biofuels are the most viable means of decarbonizing intercontinental travel, given their technical characteristics, energy content, and affordability. The life cycle emissions of bio-based jet fuels and marine fuels can be considerable, depending on their location, but can be reduced by feedstock and conversion technology choices. In recent years, the potential for transport to use synfuels, such as ethanol, methanol, methane, ammonia, and hydrogen, created from renewable electricity and CO2, has gained momentum, but has not yet demonstrated benefits on a scale consistent with 1.5 degrees Celsius pathways. Decarbonizing the fuel used by the world's 60,000 large ocean vessels faces governance barriers and the need for a global policy. Low-emission marine fuels could simultaneously address sulfur and black carbon issues in ports and around waterways and accelerate the electrification of all large ports. What are some of the land use and ecosystem transitions that will create positive changes? Alterations of agriculture and forest systems to achieve mitigation goals requires careful design and implementation that is needed to enhance their acceptability locally and support sustainable development objectives. A diversity of sustainable adaptation options exists, including mixed-crop livestock production systems, which can be cost-effective adaptation strategies in many global agricultural systems. Mixed farming is a type of farming which involves the growing of crops as well as the raising of livestock. Another farming adaptation is improving irrigation efficiency, which could effectively deal with changing global water endowments, especially if achieved via farmers adopting new behaviors and water-efficient practices, rather than through large-scale infrastructural interventions. Improving the efficiency of food production and closing yield gaps have the potential to reduce emissions from agriculture, reduce pressure on land, and enhance food security and future mitigation potential. Improving efficiency of food production also leads to poverty reduction and meeting food security objectives. But options to reduce absolute emissions are limited unless paired with demand-side measures. To revisit demand-side measures from previous chapters, this is where we reduce our demand for energy reduce our land use demands for raising livestock, and food consumption choices are greener, 
which results in the reduction of greenhouse gases, such as methane, by reducing consumption of meat. In addition, by decreasing food loss and waste along with changing dietary behaviors could result in mitigation and adaptation by reducing both emissions and pressure on land with significant co-benefits for food security, human health, and sustainable development. However, any evidence of successful policies to modify dietary choices remains limited. What are improvements we can make to forest systems? One of the primary ways to reduce CO2 is with our forest systems. Afforestation and reforestation play a main role here. What does the term afforestation mean? Afforestation is the process of planting large numbers of trees on land which has few or no trees on it. Compare this to reforestation, which is the natural or intentional restocking of existing forests and woodlands that have been depleted, usually through deforestation. Most carbon dioxide reduction options face multiple feasibility constraints, limiting the potential for any single option to sustainably achieve the large-scale deployment. Two of the main pathways for CO2 reduction rely on either bioenergy with carbon capture and storage, or afforestation and reforestation, or both. To neutralize emissions that are expensive to avoid or to draw down CO2 emissions in excess of the carbon budget. Though CO2 dominates long-term warming, the reduction of warming short-lived climate forcers, or SLCFs, such as methane and black carbon, can in the short term contribute significantly to limiting warming. Reductions of black carbon and methane would have substantial co-benefits, including improved health due to reduced air pollution. This, in turn, enhances the institutional and socio-cultural feasibility of such actions. Reductions of several warming SLCFs are often co-emitted with CO2, therefore reducing CO2 emissions necessary to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius would also then see emissions of warming from short-lived climate forcers greatly reduced. The land footprint needed per ton of CO2 removed is higher when using afforestation and reforestation than for bioenergy with carbon capture and storage. Low levels of deployment and the energy requirements and economic costs of direct air carbon capture and storage remain high. At the local scale, soil carbon sequestration, where increased amounts of carbon are held in the soil through solutions like afforestation and reforestation, has co-benefits with agriculture and is cost-effective even without climate policy. However, its potential feasibility and cost-effectiveness at the global scale also appears to be more limited. Another mitigation plan that has been introduced is Solar Radiation Modification, or SRM. According to the Solar Radiation Management Governance Initiative, if it could be made to work, 
SRM would be the only known method for quickly stopping the rise in global temperatures. It could even be used to cool the planet should that ever be deemed necessary. As such, it might be able to reduce some damages while humanity decarbonizes the global economy. Different SRM techniques have been proposed, but the proposals receiving the most attention from researchers would involve brightening marine clouds by spraying seawater into the lower atmosphere, which would make them more reflective and aid in reflecting the sun back into space, or replicating the cooling effect of volcanoes by spraying reflective sulfate particles into the stratosphere, reflecting away a small amount of inbound sunlight and cooling the planet for a year or two. The use of SRM would not directly reduce concentrations in greenhouse gases, and therefore numerous expert reports have concluded that it could never be a complete solution to global warming and does not represent a substitute for mitigation of greenhouse gas emissions. The potential side effects of implementing SRM are also widely unknown. These uncertainties surrounding solar radiation modification measures constrain their potential deployment. What are other key items that need to be implemented to reach our goals? The speed of transitions and of technological change required to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels has been observed in the past with success within specific sectors and technologies. However, then expanding these geographical and economic scales to a global platform, where required rates of change in the energy, land, urban, infrastructure, and industrial systems would need to take place are larger and have no documented historic precedent. This will require stronger coordination and disruptive innovation across all sectors and scales of governance, which includes collaboration at local, country, and global levels. This type of governance consistent with limiting warming and the political economy of adaptation and mitigation can enable and accelerate systems transitions, behavioral change, innovation, and technology deployment. An effective governance framework at all levels would include accountability in areas such as industry, civil society, and scientific institutions, coordinated sectoral and cross-sectoral policies that enable collaborative partnerships, strengthened global-to-local financial architecture that enables greater access to finance and technology, Addressing climate-related trade barriers. Improved climate education and greater public awareness. Arrangements to enable accelerated behavior change. Strengthened climate monitoring and evaluation systems. And reciprocal international agreements that are sensitive to equity and the Sustainable Development Goals, or SDGs. System transitions can be enabled by enhancing the capacities of public, private, and financial institutions to accelerate climate change policy planning and implementation, along with accelerated technological innovation, deployment, and upkeep. 
Behavior change and demand-side management, as discussed earlier, can significantly reduce emissions, substantially limiting the reliance on carbon dioxide removal to limit warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Political and financial stakeholders may find climate actions more cost-effective and socially acceptable if multiple factors affecting behavior are considered, including aligning these actions with people's core values. Behavior and lifestyle-related measures and demand-side management have already led to emission reductions around the world and can enable significant future reductions. Social innovation through bottom-up local-level initiatives can result in greater participation and increased support for technologies, practices, and policies that are part of the massive global response needed. This rapid and far-reaching response required to keep warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius and enhance the capacity and ability to adapt to climate risks would require large increases of investments in low-emission infrastructure and buildings, along with redirection of financial flows towards low-emission investments. With an investment of 1.5% of global gross fixed capital formation for the energy sector, as well as about 2.5% of global gross fixed capital for other development infrastructures. This could address the Sustainable Development Goals implementation. Quality policy design and effective implementation may enhance efficiency, however they cannot fully substitute for these necessary financial investments. Climate-sensitive realignment of savings and expenditure towards low-emission climate-resilient infrastructure and services requires an evolution of global and national financial systems. Estimates suggest that, in addition to climate-friendly allocation of public or government investments, a potential redirection of 5% to 10% of the annual capital revenues is necessary for limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. This could be facilitated by a change of incentives for private day-to-day expenditure and the redirection of savings from speculative and precautionary investments towards long-term productive low-emission assets and services. This implies the mobilization of institutional investors and mainstreaming of climate finance within financial and banking system regulation. Access by developing countries to low-risk and low-interest finance through multilateral and national development banks would have to be facilitated. New forms of public-private partnerships may be needed with multilateral, sovereign, and sub-sovereign guarantees to de-risk climate-friendly investments, support new business models for small-scale enterprises, and help households with limited access to capital. Ultimately, the aim is to promote a portfolio shift towards long-term low-emission assets that would help redirect capital away from potentially stranded assets. Enabling these investments requires changes and better integration for a range of policy instruments. It includes innovative price and non-price national and international policy instruments. What are price and non-price policy instruments? According to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, or OECD, 
Price policy instruments include environmentally related taxes, fees, and charges, tradable permits, and government spending in green technologies and infrastructure. Non-price policies include regulations as well as voluntary negotiations between governments and the industrial sectors to work toward solutions. Non-price policies also include networks and organizations created, research conducted, and training provided by the government and business sectors that will address climate change. This includes the reduction of socially inefficient fossil fuel subsidy regimes. These policies would need to be complemented by de-risking financial instruments, and the emergence of long-term low-emission assets. These instruments would aim to reduce the demand for carbon-intensive services and shift market preferences away from fossil fuel-based technology. Evidence and theory suggest that carbon pricing alone cannot reach the incentive levels needed to trigger system transitions. Embedded in consistent policy packages, They can help mobilize incremental resources and provide flexible mechanisms that help reduce the social and economic costs, which can then trigger this transition. What are some of the knowledge gaps that our society faces today? Knowledge gaps around implementing and strengthening the global response to climate change would need to be urgently resolved if the transition to 1.5 degrees Celsius world is to become a reality. Remaining questions include, how much can be realistically expected from innovation and behavioral changes? And what systemic political and economic changes will improve resilience, enhance adaptation, and reduce greenhouse gas emissions? How can rates of change be accelerated and scaled up? What is the outcome of realistic assessments of mitigation and adaptation land transitions that are compliant with sustainable development, poverty eradication, and addressing inequality? What are life cycle emissions and prospects of early-stage carbon dioxide removal options? How can climate and sustainable development policies converge, and how can they be organized within a global governance framework and financial system based upon principles of justice and ethics, reciprocity, and partnership. To what extent would limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius require a harmonization of macrofinancial and fiscal policies, which could include financial regulators such as central banks? How can different actors and processes in climate governance reinforce each other and hedge against the fragmentation of initiatives. We have covered some of the solutions that can answer some of the questions here, but many new solutions and collaborative efforts need to be initiated in extreme urgency to meet our goal of limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius of pre-industrial levels. A mix of mitigation and adaptation options implemented in a collaborative, participatory, and integrated manner can enable rapid systemic transitions in urban and rural areas that are necessary elements of an accelerated transition to reach our goal. 
Such options and changes are most effective when aligned with economic and sustainable development and when every part of our society works together towards meeting this goal. We've talked in prior podcasts about going green by changing to electrified cars, switching all lights in our house to LEDs, and becoming vegetarian or vegan. What is another change that I can do to help proactively control climate change? This week we will discuss composting, which is incredibly easy and useful. Compost is an organic material that can be added to soil to help plants grow. Food scraps and yard waste together currently make up about 30% of what we throw away and should be composted instead. Making compost keeps these materials out of landfill, where they take up space and release methane, a potent greenhouse gas, and the benefits of composting are abundant. It enriches soil, helping retain moisture and suppress plant diseases and pests. It reduces the need for chemical fertilizers. It encourages the production of beneficial bacteria and fungi that break down organic matter to create humus, a rich nutrient-filled material. It reduces methane emissions from landfills and lowers your carbon footprint. Composting can be done in your backyard with the most basic tools. All you need is a shovel, some water, and a tarp. Regularly turn and keep moist your compost pile, and it will be ready for use in as little as two months. If you do not have space for an outdoor compost pile, you can compost materials indoors using a special type of bin, which you can buy at a local hardware or gardening supply store or make yourself. A properly managed compost bin will not attract pests or rodents and will not smell bad. Your indoor compost should be ready in just two to five weeks. Visit epa.gov recycle composting home to learn more about how to start composting for yourself. Thank you for listening to our Environment Today podcast, and we hope you found the information from Chapter 4 of the IPCC report useful. Please stay tuned in two weeks to our continuation of the findings in this report, where we will cover Chapter 5 of the IPCC Special Report on Climate Change. We look forward to sharing more then on the Environment Today. Today.